I'm like taking notes as we do this, by the way. I'm also taking right, notes. Great. You've taken better notes though, because I wrote in bicycle for sword question mark. <laughs> Welcome, fellow sleuths, to Meddling Adults, a game show where we grab our magnifying glasses and go head-to-head to test our wits against the prowess of fictional young detectives for charity. I am your host, Mike Schubert. I am notoriously bad at solving children's mysteries, which is why I am safely behind the judges' table, letting others duke it out instead. Our contestants this week are Julia Schifini and Eric Hamilton Schneider of Multitude. Today's mysteries are from Encyclopedia Brown, making us beg the question, are you two smarter than a fifth grader? The prize today is $50. Eric will be playing for the LGBT Center of Greater Cleveland. Julia will be playing for RICES, the Refugee and Immigrant Center for Education and Legal Services. So without further ado, let's put the pedal to the metal. Eric and Julia, how's it going? It's going good. I'm doing great. I was always more of a boxcar kids kid, Mm. so... I'm excited to explore the world of Encyclopedia Brown, figure out what that guy was up to. Yeah, I definitely never read an Encyclopedia Brown book. I was more of a Scooby-Doo girl growing up. Um, I dressed as Velma for several Halloweens, and also my dad built me my own tiny mystery machine once. That's very good. Was it just cardboard or was it fully functional? It was originally like a pedalable Batmobile, and then he built a wooden box around it and then painted it to look like the mystery machine. That's pretty good. Whoever wins this contest today, the true winner is Julia's dad. That's fantastic. I will try to find a picture to send it to you. Please do. Please, please do. We can put it up on the episode page on the website. Hell yeah. But let's explain how this game is going to work. I will be recapping a few quick mysteries from the esteemed children's novel Encyclopedia Brown by David J. Sobel. Neither of you have read or seen these mysteries ahead of time. I will lay out all of the clues and ask you for your accusations. Each correct guess of a culprit and method will earn you points, but there's also bonus points. If your guess is incorrect, but it's the same as my guess, I'll give you a Misery Loves Company bonus point, because let me tell you, I'm always wrong with these, and I'm gonna dish them out as I see fit. And if you throw a particularly spicy jab at someone, or your guess is particularly bonkers, or I just like you, I'll throw out a bonus point as well. Everything made up. Nothing is real. This game is a social construct. I love arbitrary game rules. They're the best rules. <laughs> At the very end, we'll tally up the points. Whoever has the most will earn their charity money. But if there is a tie, we will decide the winner with a sudden death riddle. But let's see if it even comes to that. Ooh. A sudden death riddle. That's exciting. I will say I'm good at riddles. Mm. Well, then you might be good at Encyclopedia Brown. They're very Riddle-esque. We'll see. They're very much like Encyclopedia Brown has found one little tiny thing that solves the entire mystery, which I think is great. It's all technicality-based, and I love it. Mm -hmm. Great. Love it. Love those small children putting people to jail for technicalities. It's pretty fantastic. Let me just give you a quick backstory on Encyclopedia Brown himself. So I found this Encyclopedia Brown book in my childhood bedroom. Uh It is the first book in the series. Encyclopedia Brown on the cover is rocking the Kirk Fogg look Mm. from Legends of the Hidden Temple, Mm. where he's got a denim button-down shirt with pockets and jeans as well, which is a strong look. Double denim's always good. Mm -hmm. Brandon Grugel, our friend, would attest to this. Mm -hmm. Brandon loves a double denim. (laughs) He loves it. He loves it so much. Encyclopedia Brown is a fifth grader. His real name is Leroy. So yes, 
His name is Leroy Brown, oh, as boy. in bad, bad Leroy Brown, <laughs> the baddest man in the whole damn town. I cannot believe this is true. It's true. That's the <laughs> wildest thing. I genuinely don't think that Encyclopedia Brown is badder than old King Kong or meaner than a junkyard dog. He's not, but he's better at solving crimes than both of them combined. It's fair. Alrighty. It's fair. <laughs> the narrator says that everyone else in Idaville called him Encyclopedia. And then immediately after it says, an encyclopedia is a large book or set of books giving information arranged alphabetically on all branches of knowledge. The children don't know, Mike. (laughs) I just love to be constantly reminded that these books are designed for children Mm -hmm. much younger than I, though I am still a grown child. (laughs) But also encyclopedia is just a baller nickname. That is such a fresh nickname. It is a good name. Mm. It's a good name for sure. They go on to clarify why his nickname is encyclopedia. It says, Leroy Brown's head was like an encyclopedia. It was filled with facts that he had learned from books. Do you think the average fifth grader today knows what an encyclopedia is? They know what a Wikipedia is. They know what a Wikipedia is, but do you think they have any concept of like that it could possibly be the same thing. They definitely wouldn't. I would have to quote Das Racist, one of my favorite rap groups that is no more, that had a rap lyric a couple years ago that said, catch me solving mysteries like Wikipedia Brown, <laughs> which is what they'd have to rename it if they redid this. Very, very good. Because you're right, no one would know what an encyclopedia is. Also, just a few quick notes about Encyclopedia to show that he's a good guy. One, he helps old ladies in his neighborhood complete their crossword puzzles. All right, all right. And it says that when he knows the answer to these crosswords or other things, that, quote, he always waited a moment. He wanted to be helpful, but he was afraid that people might not like him if he answered their questions too quickly or sounded too smart. Oh, no, super relatable. He's such a nice dude. What a nice guy. We should all aspire to be more like Encyclopedia Brown. Mm. Also, the reason that he got into mysteries is that his dad is the chief of police. Of course. He always goes home and talks about the cases at dinner. The first one, which doesn't have a whodunit aspect, they just give you the story of how he got into sleuthing. Encyclopedia Brown helped his dad solve a case featuring armed robbery. That was the first case that this boy solved. I cannot think of a boy detective who does not have a relative who is already a police officer. I just can't. Well, the, there were two boys in the boxcar children, mm-hmm. and they were just uh, adopted by a rich guy, I think. Oh. I don't think they were in, they were police-related in any way. Okay. Mm. Yeah, was Shaggy's dad a cop? I don't know, man. That's, that's the later <laughs> stuff. You don't learn about their family in the original series. <laughs> so let's get into the very first case that we'll be covering. This case is the case of the Civil War sword. Okay. All right. Let me just start verbatim with the exact quote from the book that pops this case off. Quote, a boy with red hair stopped in the doorway of the Brown Detective Agency. Are you any good at swords, he asked? Encyclopedia did not lift his eyes from his book, How to Build a Nuclear Reactor. Why? What a book. (laughs) What a book. What year did this come out in? 1963. Yeah, that feels right. Yep, that's That's exactly right. Checks out. (laughs) So this boy is Peter Clinton. He says that he has the chance to trade in his bicycle for a sword, but he wants to make sure that the sword is truly, and I quote, Stonewall Jackson's from the Civil War. It's not. I'm telling you that right now, kid. (laughs) (laughs) The seller of this sword is Bugs Meany, 
who, if you couldn't already tell, is the town bully. Oh, man, that's just a terrible name. His last name is Meanie. He was just meant to be a bully. <laughs> he couldn't be anything else. Encyclopedia Brown goes with Peter to talk to Bugs. Bugs immediately tries to test Encyclopedia's knowledge, asking him what Stonewall did at the Battle of Bull Run. Mm. And Encyclopedia Brown, who I have learned is incredibly sassy, which makes me very happy as a mm, previous course. Harry Potter expert. I always have sassy children in my life now. E.B. shoots back immediately saying, which one? There were two battles of Bull Run, one Ooh. in 1861 and one in 1862. <laughs> oh, such a sassy boy. I love it so so much. So Bugs claims that the sword was given to Stonewall a month after the first battle. Peter whispers to Encyclopedia Brown that if that's true, the sword is worth 10 bikes like his. And Encyclopedia replies, no, it's worth 20. That's not a lot of money. Well, it kind maybe. It depends. How nice are these bikes? Oh, don't worry. I've done the research. Of On course. Antiques Roadshow in 2013, a Civil War officer's sword sold for $4,000. So let's say that it being Stonewall Jackson's bumps it up another grand to an even $5,000. I think it would probably be a little bit more, but, you know, it could. it's a pretty famous historical figure. <laughs> we'll just say it's $5,000. Dividing that by 20 is $250. This book is written in 1963, and according to the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics, $250 in the year 2013 has the same buying power of $33 in 1963. And I looked at an old Schwinn bike catalog from 1960. Bikes were about $50, so Peter's bike is fine at best. Okay. Hmm. That is the most wild reverse engineering I've <laughs> ever heard in my life. Not surprised. That's actually what I studied in college was reverse engineering. It was real. You <laughs> were a reverse engineering major. <laughs> checks out, checks out. So Encyclopedia Brown asks Bugs to read the inscription on the sword. And this is what the inscription reads. To Thomas J. Jackson for standing like a stone wall at the first battle of Bull Run on July 21st, 1861. This sword is presented to him by his men on August 21st, 1861. Encyclopedia Brown says that this sword clearly has seen a lot of use. Bugs says, of course, but E.B. says that it doesn't look like it was ever worth more than $5. He definitively states that the sword never belonged to Stonewall Jackson. Eric and Julia, how did he know? Can I hear the dates again? Yes, you can. The first date listed is July 21st, 1861. The second date listed saying that they gave it to him a month afterwards was August 21st, 1861. Okay, okay. Hmm. There are two hmm. possible ways to know that Bugs is lying. There will be points for each, but you'll get bonus points if you are able to guess both of them. Do I need to know history in order to solve this question for one of the two yes okay. and the other one no okay i'm gonna i'm gonna take the first guess okay. i'm gonna go out for it here we go yes did stonewall jackson die in between july 21st and august 21st oh. okay that's a good guess that's a good that guess. Is a good guess i'm into that i'm gonna guess that his like his real name wasn't Thomas. Ooh, okay. Those know. are both very good guesses. Mm -hmm. So my guess was that the Battle of Bull Run did not actually take place in July. It was like April or something, and Encyclopedia mm -hmm. knew it. But that is not the correct answer. Okay, Here gotcha. are the two correct answers. First, Stonewall Jackson and his men were from the South, so they would have called it the Battle of Manassas instead of the Battle of Bull Run. That's so dumb. Okay. That's the dumb you would have needed to know Civil War history. Okay. But here's the second one, and I feel very silly for not knowing 
and not catching this, the inscription said that it was given to him for his performance in the first Battle of Bull Run. How would they have known that it was going to be the first yeah. if the second one didn't Unless happen? Unless the battle happened within that month period. Exactly. Wow. And it was a full year later. Oh, nah. I did write that down. Why did I? Okay. I'm just so dumb. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I'm like taking notes as we do this, by the way. I'm also taking right, notes. Great. You've taken better notes, though, because <laughs> I wrote it bicycle for sword question mark. <laughs> And then I wrote the dates and I wrote Bugs Beanie. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> Gonna take better notes on, on mystery too. Mm-hmm. I think that both of your answers are very fun though. I'm giving you each a bonus point. So we are tied at one to one currently. Huzzah. Alrighty. <laughs> so the second mystery is the case of Mirko's grandson. How do you spell Mirko? M-E-R-K-O. K-O. That's a weird name. Mm-hmm. All right. This one is set up in a bit of a Tarantino style because oh. you get flashbacks. Oh, okay. Oh. <laughs> Can't wait. The first scene we see is the Tigers. The Tigers are the club that Bugs Meanie is the head of. They are all cheering on Encyclopedia Brown because he is about to face off against Sally Kimball in a battle of the brains. Now, you might be wondering why Bugs Meanie's sworn enemy of Encyclopedia Brown is cheering him on. Well, here's the flashback backstory. When Sally moved into town two months ago, all of the boys tried to show off for her because she was pretty, tall, and good at sports. Okay, hold on. Triple threat. (laughs) The big three. She gathered a group of fifth grade girls who were on the softball team, challenged the boys to softball, and mopped the floor with them. She pitched a shutout, struck out almost everybody, and she hit the game-winning home run to beat the boys one to zero. Wow. Okay. Sounds great. Sounds like a cool lady. This part is not important to the mystery. I'm just laying the groundwork for how great Sally is. I need to know everything about Sally. (laughs) Bugs was picking on a small kid. Sally stood up for him, saying, let him go. Bugs refused. Sally is so strong that she yanks the kid out of Bugs' grasps, then punches him in the face three times. The third punch lands him, quote, flat on his back, flat as a 15-cent sandwich. (laughs) What does that mean? I googled it. It means nothing. I guess it just means if you only spend 15 cents on a sandwich, you can't put in a lot of materials, so it would be a very thin sandwich. That would be my guess. I would imagine like a nice dollar sandwich Mm. back then is probably like your big Dagwood club. Like a shaggy eating it in one bite kind of situation, but he has to unhinge his jaw. Got it. Mm Mm-hmm. So Sally, after doing this, wanted to prove not only that she was stronger than all the boys up to 12 years old in town, but also (laughs) that she was smarter. So she challenged the smartest boy in town, Encyclopedia Brown, to a battle of the brains. Okay. So the battle is a riddle battle. And here's where you need to start paying attention. Okay. Sally has five minutes to tell a riddle and Encyclopedia Brown has five minutes to solve them. And here is the riddle. The great Mirko was the best trapeze artist that had ever lived. In 1922, Mirko died at the height of fame. In Mirko's desk was a letter. It was a will left by the superstar. It stated that the star's money be given to Mirko's oldest grandson after 40 years. But if no grandson was alive, it would go to the next nearest relative. A man named Fred Gibson was found, and he claimed to be Mirko's grandson. So they go to court to rule out the will, but a woman in the back of the court screams that she is the star's grandniece, and the great Mirko was not Fred's grandfather. The judge agrees with everything she said because it was ruled that everything she said was true. The question is who got the money. 
Now, Encyclopedia Brown opens his eyes because he always closes his eyes to focus. That's his trademark thing. (laughs) He smiles at Sally. Then he says, you told it quite cleverly. But the answer is quite simple. He then stands up and starts to leave, but turns and says, the great Mirko's money was given to Fred Gibson. How did he know? Mm, Okay. 1922, he dies? Yes. Fred Gibson claims to be his grandson. Yes. Yes. And then what was the other woman's name? She didn't get a name, right? She is just a tall woman in the back of the court. And she claimed to be the grandniece. Yes. And she claimed that the great Mirko was not Fred's grandfather. Huh. Hold on, I gotta draw a family tree real quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm also like, what's a grandniece? What is that? I don't know. Grandniece means it's like his brother's granddaughter or sibling's granddaughter, right? I think it's one of those things like brother-in-law where it can go a couple of different ways, but I would believe that it could be like your grandfather's brother or like your uncle's grandfather maybe, though that feels like a maybe we're getting into twice removed situation. Mm. I have zero first cousins, so family trees are just an enigma to me. Fair. Julia, I'm, I think I have my guess, so I'm going to let Julia guess first. Okay. Oh, no, I'm not ready yet. Because, well, I guessed first last time. <laughs> okay. Can you reiterate the statement from the will real sure. quick? Thank you. In Mirko's desk was a letter, a will left by the superstar. It stated the star's money to be given to Mirko's oldest grandson after 40 years. If no grandson was alive, it would go to the next nearest relative. Okay, I think it's something dumb, like Gibson is the woman's brother or something like that. And so she knows that Gibson isn't the grandson, but he is the grandnephew. Ah. And so he still gets the money because no one else can claim it. Okay. A fun and also guess. sexism. <laughs> Eric Schneider, what do you got? I'm going to say that Fred Gibson is for some reason the great Mirko's son and that this mystery woman is his daughter. And since uh, there's no grandson, he only had a daughter that still makes Fred Gibson Mirko's nearest relative. Okay. These are both great guesses. And much like my guess, far too complicated for the answer. So my guess... (laughs) (laughs) My guess, which was purely done because Encyclopedia Brown says, you told it very cleverly. So I went back and read it with a fine tooth comb. Mm. My guess was that the great Mirko and Mirko were two different people Mm. because it always differentiates between (laughs) the great Mirko and Mirko. And it always just says the star's money. So my thought was that it was the great Mirko's money, but it was in regular Mirko's will that it goes to regular Mirko's grandson. And Fred Gibson is the grandson of regular Mirko. Mirko, but not the great Mirko, like the tall lady said, but that doesn't matter because it's regular Mirko's will that's giving away the great Mirko's money. Let me tell you, that is not correct. Mike, what? What What is happening? You said Mirko so many times. The real answer is that the great Mirko is a woman, so it's the grandmother, so he's still the grandson, but the woman in court is still correct because all the woman in court said is that the great Mirko wasn't his grandfather. That's correct because she's a woman and we're all sexist. Sexism was the answer. I was right. (laughs) I will give you a bonus point for saying and sexism. (laughs) Great. But we all assumed the great Marco was a boy. Oh man, we we doctored as the mother. Fuck. (laughs) In our defense, Mirko ends in an O feels like a boy name. I know, right? Yeah. There's very few feminine names that end in O in, you know, Latin romantic uh, naming. 
conventions. Even Frida Kahlo is Frida mm-hmm. Kahlo. <laughs> Maybe it was a last name. Maybe that's how he fucked it up. Oh, that's probably what it was. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're messing up. But one final note here is that after this, Encyclopedia Brown and Sally become friends. Encyclopedia makes Sally his bodyguard and <gasps> his junior partner in the detective firm. Wow. I have a crush on Sally. She's perfect. Yeah, she's great. She seems great. So at the end of the second round, Julia has a lead of two points to one. Woo. <laughs> Only I had called out sexism. <laughs> <laughs> Just every answer be like, and also the patriarchy. <laughs> great. So I win all my arguments. The third mystery is the case of the secret pitch. Speedy Flanagan, which is a name, oh is the God. shortest fastball pitcher in Idaville Little League. And he walks into Encyclopedia Brown's office asking, what do you know about browning? Encyclopedia Brown says, nothing. I've never browned. But once at the beach, I tanned something awful. And Jesus. <laughs> and then Speedy interrupts. He says, I meant Robert Browning, the English poet. No, the American League pitcher, Robert Spike Browning. And then the narrator says, even Encyclopedia's Aunt Bessie knew of Spike Browning. He was the ace of the New York Yankees pitching staff. This dude has been referred to as three different names already. (laughs) He's been referred to as Browning, Robert Spike Browning, and now just Spike Browning. (laughs) And full Robert Browning. So four different names in a couple sentences. Let me also just lay this out here as a diehard Yankees fan. This human does not exist. He is fictional. I could tell by the name. By by his nickname being Spike in 1963. Mm -hmm. Also, who came into the office? What was that man's name? Speedy Flanagan. Speedy Flanagan. I wrote down Speedy Fastball. (laughs) (laughs) He's a fastball pitcher. So right, that's probably wrong. why I wrote yeah, that out. close. <laughs> so Speedy made a bet with Bugs Meanie, which you just should stop, stop doing. Stop. <laughs> stop interacting with Bugs Meanie. Is Speedy Flanagan an adult or a child? <laughs> He's a child. He pitches in the local <laughs> okay. Little League in Idaville. Gotcha. I definitely thought this was an adult coming to Encyclopedia Brown for help. And I was like, wait, now I'm confused. Why is this adult hanging out with Bugs Meanie? Adults come into Encyclopedia Brown's office all of the time in these books, but I found that the adults' crimes are easier to solve than the children's crimes, so I haven't been choosing them for this podcast. Because adults are dumb. <laughs> right. <laughs> if I guess the thing correctly, I usually don't include it because that means it was too easy if I could get it right because gotcha. I'm always wrong. So Speedy made a bet with Bugs that Bugs couldn't get Spike to buy a secret pitch idea off of him for $100. Real Astro situation. Okay. Like a fastball, but fancier? I don't know. Like he would teach him how to throw a special pitch and then Spike would have to pay Bugs $100 for rights to the pitch, I guess. Um... Okay. This is also not how baseball works, just for all the non-sports heads out there. Also, $100 in 1963 is $853 today. That's too many. It's a good too deal. Many so Bugs is the one getting Spike to buy the pitch, or Speedy Bugs is, is the one? Bugs is selling a pitch to Spike. Okay. Bugs is selling a pitch to Spike, and the bet is over a baseball bat. So if Bugs successfully gets Spike to buy this pitch, he gets to have Speedy's baseball bat. And if Speedy is able to prove him wrong, then Speedy gets Bugs' baseball bat. Now, Spike is an adult. (laughs) Spike is a grown adult who is reportedly taking pitching advice from the town bully in Idaville. Got it. Why? Why? (laughs) How how is this possible? Now everything is clear. (laughs) 
Two children are making a bet about one child selling an adult a pitch to win a baseball game. An adult who does not live in this town. Oh, but let me explain how this went down. Great. Bugs said that he was in New York City last June with his uncle. He's lying. And he sold Spike the idea for his cross-eyed special. Okay, hold on. I'm writing that down. So here's how the cross-eyed special works. The pitcher crosses his eyes whenever there are runners on first and third base. That way, nobody knows which way he's looking, whether he's going to throw to first base, third base, or throw a pitch to home plate. The runners wouldn't dare take a lead, and the secret is how the pitcher can throw the ball to any of these places while staring himself in the eye. I don't think that makes any sense, you but can't I'm, I'm see sticking anything. with it. I'm, I'm, I'm still sticking with it. From a baseball perspective... It does not. Okay. But we're going through with it as if it does. Great. Is the mystery that <laughs> Bugs is full of shit? Is that the answer? He usually is. But it's always, how did Encyclopedia Brown know that Bugs was full of mm, shit? Right. That's what we're trying to solve here. Because it's basically a control group and understanding that we all know to be true that Bugs Meanie is going to be full of shit. Because as the narrator describes, quote, Bugs Meanie was the leader of the Tigers, a gang of older boys who caused more trouble than itching powder in Friday's walk. Oh, Jesus. I did look up itching powder, oh, uh, and it is just used as a prank, though it is used sometimes to check how effective anti-itch creams are. Well, that would make sense because it causes you to itch. Gotta start somewhere. Gotta. If you want to make your own itching powder at home, you can grind up some rose hips, or you can use an ingredient such as mucana puriens, which is a type of legume that produces sea pods coated with thousands of detachable spicules, which are needle-like hairs. And they contain an enzyme that causes severe itching. Or hey, don't. Don't make it at home. <sighs> I feel like I need a 1960s correspondent for this podcast to know if <laughs> like, if any of these things were rampant. If <sighs> itching powder was the backpack turtling of the 1960s. Itching powder was definitely a thing. Yeah. For sure. I feel like it was. Probably mm. happened in many episodes of the Three Stooges. Yeah, 100%. Though that was not a 1960s thing. I'm going to correct you there. <laughs> So Encyclopedia Brown approaches the tiger's hideout. The tiger's leader broke off to greet Encyclopedia. Get lost, he said. But Encyclopedia <laughs> demanded to see the check and the letter apparently written by Spike. Now, I'm going to copy paste this image into the Skype call oh, so you can yeah. see the letter because that is very important. I feel like I have an answer even before you paste it. Oh, but baby. We'll see. Okay. So the two of you can now see this letter, I will read it for our lovely audience at home. It says, Yankee Stadium, New York, June 31st. Dear Bugs, your cross-eyed pitch is the greatest thing since the spitball. I expect to win 30 games with it this season. For reference, 30 games is a lot of baseball games to win as a pitcher. For sole rights to the secret of it, I'm happy to enclose my check for $100. Yours truly, Spike Browning. Bonkers that he signs his names, and I can only assume the check as well with his nickname. Hmm. So then to wrap it up, Bugs says, man, oh man, I invented the greatest pitch since Edison threw out the gas lamp, <laughs> which of course Bugs would be a fan of Thomas Edison, notorious thief. Uh. All right. Bugs continues, no smart Alec private detective is going to walk in here and call me a liar. Encyclopedia Brown hits him back with, oh, yes, I am. Spike Browning never wrote that letter. That check is a worthless piece of paper. Oh, How shit. did he know? Okay, I think I know this one. Okay, I have a question before I answer. When does baseball season start? Baseball season starts usually in April. Okay. 
How many games are there in a baseball season? 162. But okay. a pitcher usually pitch only every four or five. If you win 30 games as a pitcher, that is bonkers. Not unheard okay. of, but you are very, very good. You're going to win the Cy Young Award if you win 30 games. Okay. I think, do you mind if I go first, Eric? No, no, go for it. I, okay. I already know my guess. And I'll stick to it regardless of what you say. Sure. I think it's too late in the season for him to be claiming that he's going to win 30 games. Ah, That's my guess. That is also my guess because the World Series takes place in October. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not impossible that you would play 30 more games between start of July and end of September, but it just seems very, very unlikely. Okay. So my guess, which much like yours was far too complicated for the actual answer. I love this theme that we're going on. Okay, fine. (laughs) My guess was that when there's runners on first and third, you stand in a way traditionally to where you are facing one of the bases because if you were facing home plate, you'd be in the full windup and the guy could steal second. That would just be a horrible strategy. That was too baseball even answer. Mm -hmm. The real answer, this letter is dated June 31st. There is no June 31st. Motherfucker. Oh, God (laughs) damn it. (laughs) I wrote June 30th. In my notes, and then looked at the letter. I was like, motherfucker. <laughs> Jesus. I was also thinking very baseball-y, like with the, what, what your thought was, uh-huh. Mike. But I was like, there's no way they're going to explain <laughs> the intricacies of how to, like, get it out from, like, first or third. Oh, I love it so much. Okay, oh, so we are so still bad. at two to one in favor of Julia. Because oh. we're all overthinking this book for children. All right. So the next mystery is the case of the balloon man. Oh, hell yeah. Case of the balloon man. Here we go. So this one starts off with Mrs. Brown calling up to Encyclopedia saying, Leroy, it's time for dinner. Wash up, please. The narrator says Encyclopedia put down the book he was reading. Six ways to reach the moon on a budget. Don't do that. What? Wait, hold, when did this rockets. book come out? 1963. We hadn't been to the mood yet. No, we had not. Hey, ahead of his time. <laughs> very, very much so. And he wants to do it on a budget. I feel like he's definitely a uh, a student of Jules Verne, 100%. Ooh, I can see it, I can see it. Like Doc Brown. It also notes that he went to the bathroom and gave his face, quote, a lick and a promise, which I only knew what? from an Aerosmith song, which is about a douchebag rock star that can't be bothered to learn the names of the women that are pining after him. But according to Grammarist.com, a lick and a promise means to do something with a minimum amount of effort to do it quickly and haphazardly. Uh-huh. The term lick and a promise plays on a secondary meaning of the word lick, popular several hundred years ago, meaning to clean something quickly. So... That's our grammar lesson for the day. Is it like like a, it, it'll be a lick, you know, like it'll be a short time? I don't I, know. I, I guess a quick as a lick. That's yeah. the saying. He hmm. he cleaned himself very quickly. I don't know what the promise is. Like, I promise to clean myself better next time, maybe. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. know. But Encyclopedia comes downstairs. Chief Brown over dinner says that it is reported that Bobby Tyler, one of Encyclopedia Brown's classmates, was kidnapped by Izzy the Balloon Man. Okay. All right. Hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Izzy the Balloon Man is someone that I assume is the candy man in town because Encyclopedia Brown's mother asks why he's called the Balloon Man. And E.B. says that if you buy more than 15 cents worth of candy or anything, he gives you a green and pink balloon for free. Okay. I'm kind of confused of what type of salesman this person is because they mentioned him driving around in his car. I don't know if he's like a door-to-door salesman and then you buy stuff off of him. I'm just very concerned. There's a lot happening here that I'm just 
I don't know. Also, strange that he's called the Balloon Man when apparently he's selling other things, but that does give a free balloon. Exactly. His nickname is for his secondary profession. It's just like a bonus with what he does. But here we are. The important things to know is that he sells things to kids. Kids are cool with them. And if you buy 15 cents or more worth of stuff, he will blow up a balloon for you. Well, kids are cool with him until he kidnapped Bobby Tyler. Or did he, Julia Shafini? Oh. <laughs> so Chief Brown says, I guess Izzy got tired of blowing up balloons. Bobby's father is wealthy. <laughs> Yikes. Oh, no. <laughs> very grim wording from Chief Brown here. This is a very casual conversation to be having with your fifth grader at the table. Always over dinner. Always over dinner. But Encyclopedia it's extremely refused. concerning. <laughs> Encyclopedia Brown refuses to believe it. Chief Brown says there was an eyewitness, Sam Potts. Now, here's Mr. Potts' story. Mr. Potts said that he was in the backyard with Reverend Bevan when they noticed a green and pink balloon stuck in Potts's tree. That is Izzy's trademark balloon. Okay. Mr. Potts goes up on a ladder to climb and get the balloon out. He notes that there was no breeze to knock the balloon out of the tree, so he would have to yank it out himself. So he gets up on a ladder to get it out. While he's on top of the ladder, he is able to see over the 12-foot-tall wall that surrounds his backyard and divides it from Bobby Tyler's family's backyard, which is across the wall. 12 foot? 12 feet tall. I am also concerned. That's wild. A privacy fence is like six or eight. Eight feet seems outlandishly tall. Six is average. 12 is straight out. 12 feet. It is taller than a basketball rim. But they do note that Mr. Potts is just renting the house, so he didn't put in this wall himself. It's just the house that he happened to move into two months ago. Also, the Tylers are super rich, so they probably have just, like, you know, grounds. <laughs> I think this guy's up to something. This guy's got a weird fence. It could be the Tylers. The Tylers are loaded. Hmm. So while on top of the ladder, Potts relayed to Bevan what he saw. He says that he saw Bobby go into Izzy's car, but they just figured that Mrs. Tyler was okay with him hanging out with Izzy because he's with kids all the time, I guess. But later that day, when Bobby was reported missing, Bevan told Potts, you should call in what you saw to the police. Okay. <laughs> so Bobby's father had received a ransom note oh, of $60,000 for Bobby. $60,000. I went back to our lovely inflation calculator. And in today's money, that is $510,548.68. That's a lot of money. Quite a hefty ransom. It's a child that's been kidnapped? Yes, Bobby, Bobby Tyler, Tyler, who does have two first names, has been kidnapped. Bobby Tyler, never trust a man with two first names. Mm -hmm. Never, ever. It's clearly it's the kidnapped child's fault. <laughs> but Encyclopedia Brown knows that... Izzy is not guilty, he knows it definitively, and he wants Chief Brown to act quickly before this ransom is picked up because Encyclopedia Brown believes that Mr. Potts himself is guilty. How did he know? I got this one. Ooh. I think I got this one. Okay. Okay, you, you take it away because I don't have anything right now. <laughs> okay, so Mr. Potts had to climb into the tree to get the balloon, right? Yes, he did. And there was no breeze that day. There was no breeze that day. So even if Bobby let go of the balloon or something, it wouldn't have ended up in Mr. Potts's tree. Makes sense to me. So his story is bullshit. Okay, all right. 
I like the guess. Eric Schneider, what do you got? That's also pretty much what I have. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out if the fact that the fence is very tall or the fact that he was, where was he talking with the Reverend from? Mr. Potts was talking to the Reverend in Mr. Potts's backyard. So they were both there. He got up on a ladder, got the balloon, came down and told the Reverend what he saw. So the Reverend couldn't see anything because of the 12 foot wall. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to say, I'm going to say the Reverend did it. Oh. And the Reverend on the way to Mr. Potts' house left the balloon there as incriminating evidence so ah. that and then once he oh wait no yeah i'm in i'm, I'm in it okay, i'm in it okay <laughs> and then he's the one that told mr potts to explain what he saw so that even makes it look even stranger so the reverend's leading him down this path to incriminate himself because he's like oh i found a balloon in my yard and everyone's gonna be like their event and then like once no, that, this is this is too much. I'm, I'm, I'm too far in it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> because then it, it requires that they stop looking at Izzy and start looking at Mr. Potts. And then they accuse him. And then the Reverend still gets away with it. I'm still going with, I'm going with the Reverend. <laughs> Eric, I do love I'm this. I'm going with the Reverend is framing Mr. Potts, who is accidentally framing <laughs> Izzy. <laughs> I, I love this. That's my answer. Okay. I will say, Shubes did say at the end of the story that Encyclopedia Brown, who is never wrong about mm -hmm. anything ever did say it was Mr. Potts and not the Reverend. Oh, he did. <laughs> Shit. But it's I'm okay. just going to stick with the initial thing. Yeah, I like how deep into it you got. It's okay. <laughs> I will be awarding you each a bonus point. I will be giving Julie a bonus point because it is the same guesses that I said, which was because yeah. of the lack of wind, he would have had to have dropped it from his own backyard. Mm -hmm. And thus, Mr. Potts kidnapped him and this is all just a plot. Now, Eric, I'm giving you a bonus point because I was buck wild and bonkers and I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the real answer. The balloon was stuck in the tree, but Izzy blows up the balloons himself. That balloon could only get stuck in a tree if you used helium in the balloon. So Mr. Potts was filled that, up the balloon I was, himself. I was wondering about this. Does, is that mentioned anywhere? They didn't say he blows it up with his own breath. You would have had to have known it because of Chief Brown's line where he says, I guess he got tired of blowing up balloons. Oh, mm. that's so dumb. <laughs> it's extremely dumb, That Mike. one's a bit of a stretch because that requires, because you because it's still blowing up balloons whether you use your own breath or a helium tank. <laughs> I think the writing makes it clear that it was blowing it up by himself. Mm. But if I dwelled on it too much in the description, it <laughs> I would have given it away really, really heavy handedly. Yeah. But right. you still each walk away with a point. So at the end of this round, Julia is leading three to two. We're getting into the final mystery. This one is a little bit easier. I was able to solve it. So I <gasps> saved this for the end so that we can end on a big victorious note. And hopefully one of you or maybe both will get it. No one's got an eddy of them. No yet, one has. Right? No. Is that correct? <laughs> no one has. But maybe this final one will change it because this is the case of the ambushed cowboy. Oh, boy. Okay. Chief Brown decides that he wants to take a vacation because he hasn't taken time off in three years. <laughs> Encyclopedia Brown wants them to go to Texas as he is currently reading Upper Cretaceous Limestone in the Lone Star State. But This kid's always reading the most on-the-nose <laughs> title of books. So they decide to go along with it. Mrs. Brown is like, sure, what better reason to go to Texas? So while in Texas, they go on a guided tour on horseback led by a man <laughs> named Mr. Scotty. Mr. Scotty points to a high rock, which he calls Johnny Kid Corner. Okay. And he tells a story that 85 years ago, Ringo Charlie got ambushed by Johnny Kid here at Johnny Kid Corner. Sorry, what was the name? Ringo what? Ringo Charlie. Gotcha. 
He was ambushed by Johnny by Kid. Johnny Kid. At Johnny Kid Corner. At obviously. Johnny Kid Corner. <laughs> named later. Named, of course. It would have been mm. terrible if it was named at the time. <laughs> See, like, you're just asking for it then. Very silly of Ringo Charlie to go strolling against his adversary <laughs> at a place named after him. This ambush happened because of a poker feud. Johnny Kid claimed that Ringo Charlie had cards stuffed up his sleeve. But he never approached Charlie about this because Charlie was cousins with half of the people in town and he was the quickest draw in the West. So Kid never complained out of fear, I guess, of being shot. Yeah, I think that's it. Okay. So Ringo, Charlie, cousins with half of the people in town mm-hmm. and also quickest, quickest draw. draw. Then Mr. Scotty begins to act out what happened on that fateful day at nine in the morning. <laughs> It is specified. Gotcha. As Mr. Scotty moved toward the corner, he squinted into the morning sun. One hand was cupped above where a pistol would have hung at his hip. And he says the following. Johnny Kidd saw Ringo Charlie's shadow coming while Ringo Charlie was still on the other side of the rock. Out jumps Johnny Kidd from behind the rock, both guns blazing. Ringo Charlie is hit, but his horse breaks into a gallop and carries him back to town. So Ringo Charlie then tells all of his cousins in town that (laughs) he was shot by Johnny Kidd, but it wasn't fair because it wasn't a true duel. He was ambushed around the corner. Mm -hmm. Encyclopedia Brown says that this is a bunch of baloney and that Ringo Charlie is lying about this, and he's just embarrassed that Johnny Kidd beat him in a duel. How did Encyclopedia Brown know that Ringo Charlie was lying? I know this one. I know this one. Okay. I got this. I think I know this one as well. I think that with the time of day that they were dueling or meeting, he wouldn't have been able to see the shadow. Okay. What is your guess, Eric Schneider? Yeah. So it takes place at 9 a.m. The sun rises in the east and the sun is pointed in his eyes. So he's squinting. I'm drawing a map as I talk. (laughs) And then there's a rock. And if he's behind it, he saw the shadow, oh, but the shadow, uh, did it say which way either of them were facing? Mr. Scotty was acting it out from Ringo Charlie's perspective. Okay. From Ringo Charlie's perspective, as he turned the corner, the sun was in his eyes. Okay. What Ringo Charlie told everyone is that Johnny Kidd saw his shadow coming around the corner. Oh, Yes. Oh, then the shadow's yeah, facing yeah. the wrong then, way. Yeah. Okay, now I get it. Yes. The shadows don't make sense based on where the sun would be. You are both correct. If the sun was in his eyes, the shadow would be behind him. <laughs> There's no way that Johnny Kidd would have been able to see his shadow approaching. So Johnny Kidd was just better at shooting than the fastest gun in Texas. <laughs> and Ringo Charlie was just embarrassed about it. Mm. You have solved the case of the ambushed cowboy. Nice, Huzzah! we did it, we did it. We did, we you did. You have done it, five points to each of you. Proud of which us. Which brings our final tally to a victory for Julia Shafini of eight points to seven. Woo. That narrow one point for blaming sexism <laughs> yep. made you the victor in today's competition. It always and wins. $50 is going to Ricey's. Julia, how do you feel? I'm feeling great. I'm, I'm very excited that um, I won on the cowboy challenge. <laughs> So we've all walked away solving one correct mystery. We're at 20% success rate. None of us are smarter than 
at least this particular fifth grader, Encyclopedia Brown. Clearly, we all need to read more books. I feel like I'm smarter than the average fifth grader. Yes. That's Encyclopedia all. Brown is not your average fifth grader. <laughs> not at all. Not with those books he's reading. <laughs> Too many books. <laughs> well, Eric and Julia, thank you so much for joining on this first ever episode of Meddling Adults. I'm glad that you were able to help me go through these mysteries and help people along the way. If people want to find you all on the internet, where can they do so? I'll let my my winning opponent oh, share you. her socials first. Sure. You can find me at Julia Shafini on basically all the social media, particularly Twitter. That's where I'm at usually. And uh, on Instagram at Jules Vern Rose. And you can listen to my shows, Spirits and Join the Party and all the good multitude shows like Head, Heart, Gut. You can find me pretty much everywhere on the internet at I'm Eric Schneider. And you can also... Uh, check out the the videos I edit for Cinema Wins over on YouTube. I do those. They're a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So check those out along with all of the other multitude shows as well. And if you all want to follow this show, you can go to at Meddling Adults on Twitter and Instagram. It's the first time I've ever gotten a handle and not had to attach something to the end of it. I'm really proud. Huzzah. I'm so happy. I was able to secure both <laughs> handles and not have to put pod or show or cast or something else or numbers at the end or underscores or periods or XX XX on either side. I'm very proud of myself. So go check it out at Meddling Adults. Thank you so much for listening. And just remember that these crooks probably got away with it because we were just a bunch of meddling adults. It's a good outro. That was good. <laughs> I thought of it just now. I didn't have it scripted. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Meddling Adults. Meddling Adults is created, hosted, edited, and produced by me, Mike Schubert. It is co-produced by Multitude. The music is by Bettina Campomanes. The art is by Mayan Atias. And the web design is by me and my wife, Kelly Schubert. This first season will have 10 episodes released weekly on Wednesday mornings. If you want to get those episodes as soon as they're released, you can subscribe to this podcast on the platform of your choice. If you enjoyed it, you could rate it as well or tell someone about it. If you want to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, you can. It's at Meddling Adults on all three. And if you want to support the show and help us raise more money each episode, you can do so by joining the Patreon over at patreon.com slash meddlingadults. Thanks again for listening and hope to see you next week.